Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you were walking along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the things the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter his glory? Then, beginning with Moses, Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while we... He was talking to us on the road while he was opening the scriptures to us. That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. May this story and ours dance as spirals in the days ahead. Hello and welcome to the Lectio Cascadia podcast. My name is Brandon Rhodes, and I'm glad you're here. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for the music, the Easter season theme we've got going on. Let's begin with a little exercise. Close your eyes. Where do you see the divine breakthrough? How and where do you feel the Holy One? If the idea of a personal divine is too screwy for you, maybe consider where does the energy that moves human humanity towards its destiny, where does that energy take shape in flits and bouts like shining from shook foil? 
Take your time. Imagine what the presence of the holy feels or looks like when you make contact with the divine and apprehend the love and presence and wisdom of the holy. I'll count quietly while you can hold space for this. Open your eyes. Where were you when you're seeking the divine? Are you in a forest, a pew, a prairie, a voting booth, a dinner table? Who's with you? What fills the air? Is it music, shared song, wind? The reading of beautiful literature, such as a sacred text or a poem, or public speech. Did it have a taste, this presence of the holy? Was there a smell? Where did you feel it? In your body. Yeah. Next question. How do you trust that as authentic? contact with reality at its deepest point. Like, that's an ambitious claim or hunch. How do you trust it? What does it mean to hold this inner experience within that kind of language? What helps you parse pageantry from presence? Authoritativeness about these experiences from truth or personal sentiments from ancient streams of insight? How do you know what the hell is going on? Like, what's the story that holds these inner experiences? This week's excerpt gives a two-part story that helps me explore these questions. It's another weird story of uh, Jesus resurrected into some kind of new tactile life after being tortured to death by the religious do-gooders and imperial stooges a couple days earlier. And it's this risen Jesus hanging out elusively, unrecognizably, yet with some sense of magic to him, uh, with his friends, or his fans in this case. And yeah, to just step into that story, they're shattered, heartbroken, numb. They had believed that Jesus was the one anointed by the Creator to liberate their people from the occupying empire and the false king. He was going to assume the throne and kick everyone's ass, and in all of this, bring about a radically new chapter in humanity's story with that Creator. Instead, everyone whose ass he was supposed to whip, whipped his. They paid off. They, um... The Empire pays off one of his friends to betray him. They torture him. They put him through a sham trial, and they kill him in among the most agonizing ways ever devised. That's, that's not how the story's supposed to go uh, about God's anointed. It's a completely damned backwards, so no wonder they're stunned. And they've got seven miles of walking together from this trauma 
haunted by it. All the rumors of miracles, all the stories of his teaching and his political vision shaking folks, the nobodies feeling like somebodies, the people on his left and right are fishers and farmers, and he parades into town with them with this sense of revolution and is killed in less than a week. It's like a Game of Thrones level sick twist, like Red Wedding OG, right? Here's, and here's this stranger on the road. His attitude of there not being a reason to be heartbroken after all this, it stuns them. Speaking with them, showing them how they're, they, he, he's showing them how they'd connected the dots of their own sacred stories entirely wrong. And he's not even like all that polite about it. Um, but he's not changing their dots in the story. It's still got all their holy stories from Mo- the Moses collection to the prophet's collection, but all aligned to make sense of an anointed one that is ultimately tortured to death and the divine raising them to new life a little while later. It's, he's, it's weird, right? This is how the story is really supposed to go and has gone, he's telling them. And along the way, hearing all of this, having their world shaken, or at least their dots radically reevaluated, these two dudes have they have that feeling. You know what I'm talking about. Tell me you don't. Those moments of hauntedness where you feel a weird energy in you. A feeling wind in your soul's sails, strong enough to strain whatever weight has stilled you in frozen grief or numbness or comfort. That feeling you've had, the holy hauntedness in music, in dance, in eye contact amid lovemaking, hearing a tree heave in the wind, those supple phrase of your inner longing witnessing the birth of your child or death of a loved one. A speech or poem awakens something within you that is eternal. The taste of exquisitely crafted food or drink. You felt it in the dizzying care of a friend who wraps you up when you can't get out of bed. It's what happens in a meadow at dawn. Well, that's what I think of anyway, when I think of burning in my heart. Um, These common moments, with no more pomp or circumstances than any other day, really, and my heart burning within me. Something unexplainable, um, transcendent yet intimate which beckons me to apprehend a more splendid presence and which helps us see our world, ourselves, and our stories afresh. There's a new limberness to life, if only for a moment. I like to see all of it as, again, as for the first time, 
what do we do with these moments? Can we trust that there is indeed a deeper presence? That these brushes with beauty may indeed be the real presence of the holy? I grew up believing that the good holy feels that I'm talking about, um, that that happens in personal prayer and in ecstatic church music. And the primary metaphor or language for it is a personal relationship with Jesus. That's really all. Like, you got it in your prayer time, maybe your Bible time, and definitely the church music part in the sermon, right? Okay, those are the two times. When you're alone with your eyes shut or point looking at a Bible, or when you're in the church building on Sunday morning. It wasn't any fault of my parents that I thought like this. It's just how I connected the dots. I saw other people having good holy jives and vibes on Sunday. I didn't feel it. I felt cold and ashamed that I wasn't feeling that. I, so I, what I did was I retreated into my mind palace, right? Uh, I Analyzing and deconstructing. I'm a five on the Enneagram. <laughs> um, analyzing and deconstructing the experiences of, of these other folks. Like, they're, oh, they're just being tools of, like, the simplest and base and crass manipulative stagecraft. <laughs> I, well, I, I wavered between thinking that, that there was something wrong I wavered between thinking that there was something wrong with me for not feeling it and something wrong with them for thinking they're not just spiritually masturbating. <sighs> Shame and ego. Those were my two choices for how to interpret this. Those other moments of transcendence that I did have in my life, periodically, I think, I didn't know what to make of them. I just know I wasn't having it where I was told I should have. So I just lived in shame and ego, lonely all the way down. What a crummy place to reside. Either way, I didn't feel good about how um, how you can trust any of it. Like, I heard many people claim amid musical what have you that, you know, God told them Jesus was coming back that year, or that God said this to me about what I should do, but it didn't make sense. It didn't happen. Like, are they making this up? Are they using their own desires of what they already want to kind of baptize that and make sense of the inner magic experience, which I, I do believe was often very real. But it, oh gosh, I just feel judgmental even saying out loud how little my trust, trust I had in them. But they didn't give me anything to trust. <laughs> um, they so trusted their inner sense of magic that I struggled to, and, and to me flagrantly falsely, because Jesus did not come back in the way that any of us were expecting anyway. Um, that I struggled to trust the little moments of my own like that, my own little mystical moments. If they could make their inner experiences mean whatever they want or whatever their religious superiors told them it means, why should I even trust my own inner mystical magic? Like, these moments of transcendence, of course, if they can bend it to their own ego, of course, someone as self-righteous as me will do the same. <laughs> um, ugh. What a gross spiral this was.
moments that invited me to trust snapped me back into distrust. Yeah? Moments that made for humility wrought in me pride. I came to a disappointed space of accepting that burning hearts are probably a little more than heartburn. And whatever it means to follow Jesus, this subjective stuff that they were having, it wasn't at the center. So, like I said, it was a disappointing spiral. But life, life is two spirals. (laughs) It's a double helix, right? So there's got to be a second part to this. Okay, that's a dorky twist uh, uh-huh. uh, to pivot on, but hear me out. I think there is uh, a second spiral that can make this into a generative upward one, right? The second half of the story may help us learn to trust the inner burnings of our hearts as occasionally more than heartburn as indeed what is everlasting within us responds to the presence of Jesus, which brims about in all things. How do we know what's Jesus and what what is not, or something else? How do we align our soul's response to the presence of the resurrected one with the sacred energy of that anointed one? In other words, uh, how do you let these moments of transcendence be in service to the transcendence rather than ego or empire or whatever, or bullshit, <laughs> right? Like, that's the question. And I think we can take that question to these two sad strollers who conclude their seven-mile walk with a simple meal. The stranger blesses the bread, breaks it, and in that moment recognizes the presence of the holy that is with them, that was with them all along. They connect the dots of their own inner experiences here in the breaking of the bread. They didn't know what to make of the burning in their hearts, that, mo- that um, simmering transcendence sensation. They didn't know what to make of it. But it all comes into focus in the breaking of the bread. Now, this this story is at least a parable for one way to learn, to trust and make sense of those burning heart experiences, those I think Jesus is here experiences. If you grew up going to church much or if you've heard had a cursory knowledge of what the practitioners of the Jesus tradition do regularly, you, you know, you, you, you know that phrase, the breaking of bread. Because it's at the center of what we do. At the center of how followers of this path have spent time together for 2,000 years. At the center of it is this sacred meal of bread and wine that goes all the way back to a meal Jesus had with his closest friends the night before his execution. When the earliest hearers of this story uh, about the two dudes walking to, to Emmaus, when they heard that line, he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's a not at all subtle nod to what they were already starting to do with one another. 
It's what happens in that sacred meal, in the breaking of bread, in the story and stories that converge. In this simple table ritual, we find ourselves attuned, our eyes opened to make sense of what is plain before us and opaque within us. What can deliver us from confusion, delirium, cynicism, or disillusion about our inner experiences of transcendence? I'll submit to you that it's how it pairs with bread and wine, with the story of liberation and exodus. The story about the, uh, it's a story about the vanity of demanding blood sacrifices. It's a story about the confusing nature of how the Holy One actually works. It's a story about, it's a meal about a story of a belonging of love forged with suffering. It's a meal about a story of the strangeness of divine victory. It's a meal about the story of the capacity of the earthiness of ripped gluten to be charged with the grandeur of God. This ritual, this gratitude feast, what we call the Eucharist, this meal shared, invigorates those with burning heart moments of transcendence to be part of the wider work of the holy life in the cosmos. This is the tuning fork for your soul's hidden wonderings and longings and experiences of communion. This, my friends, is a great mystery that you can come home to. May your week ahead be filled with curiosity and wonder, gratitude and laughter, courage and presence, and may the peace of Christ be with you.